to learn from what Moses had to learn in this passage this morning. In other words, how will we respond? Our journey through this question begins in Exodus chapter 4. Please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. The scene picks up as Moses is returning home after his encounter with God through the burning bush at Mount Horeb. And I wonder what's going on in his mind at this point. As he's walking, he's probably not looking at his surroundings, the path, the sheep, the wilderness. I imagine his mind churning over and over this conversation that he just had. As we learned last week, God had commissioned Moses to be the one to lead his people out of Egypt. But Moses had resisted. I can't do this. He didn't think he had the right authority or the right ability to go through with it. But three times God reassured Moses, I will be with you to give you authority. I will be with your words. I will send your brother Aaron with you and I will be with both of you. So for the first time, Moses had no more objections to say to God. But we are still left wondering, Will he go through with it? Yes, he does tell his father-in-law Jethro that he's going to go to Egypt, but he doesn't mention anything about leading the Israelites out of bondage. All he says is this, Please let me go back to my brothers to see whether they are still alive. His statement communicates uncertainty. So as we walk with him at this moment, we feel that uncertainty. Will Moses indeed go through with it? And I imagine that since he was struggling with this on the mountain, that he is still struggling with this within himself at this moment, even as he begins to slowly move forward with the plan. But right away, a few things happen that must have given Moses a sense of relief. The first is Jethro's blessing. Even though Moses is working for Jethro at the time, even though Moses would be taking Jethro's daughter to Egypt, and most importantly, even though he would be taking Jethro's two grandsons to Egypt. And I know how you grandparents are out there. My picture used to be all over my parents' refrigerator. And now... Top to bottom, it's all the grandbabies. And here is Moses. He's going to take the grandsons to Egypt. But Jethro didn't fight Moses like Laban with Jacob. He didn't even begrudgingly send him off. Jethro blessed Moses with these words, Go in peace. For Moses, this must have been a breath of relief. And in a way, I can relate There are times I sense a divine urge to witness to somebody or to pray to somebody, but I'm struggling within myself about it. I'm not quite sure what to do, but what tips me over the edge is when Lisa says, go for it. Jethro might not have seen the full picture, but God still used him to say something like, go for it. Sometimes all we need is a little piece of encouragement. And then God himself adds to the relief. 
He tells Moses, all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Do you see the gentleness of God here? These people obviously weren't a threat to God. He could protect Moses either way. So it makes most sense that God said this to Moses simply because it's what Moses needed to hear. It was one more piece of encouragement, one more breath of relief. And then it says this, Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This is more than a passing detail. It's laden with meaning. The very last thing God told Moses to do on Mount Horeb was to take the staff in his hand. So we have been wondering, will he go through with it? And now as he grabs the staff in his hand, we finally see him figuratively take God by the hand, shake his hand, and say, let's do this. Moses' face is set towards Egypt. We know that he is heading down to do what God told him to do. He is going to lead the people out of captivity. It's fitting that it's a staff. A staff is what shepherds use to lead their flocks into new pastures. But notice a little detail here. It's God's staff. Throughout the Exodus account, God is the shepherd and Israel is his flock. But then what he says next makes it even more personal. Not only is Israel his flock, he says this in verses 22 through 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. To God, Israel is as dear to him as his firstborn son. This statement lies at the very center of the Exodus. Pharaoh has been holding in slavery a nation whom God loves as his firstborn son. This is the essential conflict in the Exodus. God is saying to Pharaoh... Israel does not belong to you. They belong to me. To you they are slaves. But to me, they are sons. God's desire is to rescue this nation from a cruel kidnapping along with anyone else who will join them and bring them home to the promised land where he can restore their close-knit family relationship at last. God's warning is clear. If Pharaoh wants to keep his firstborn son, then he must be willing for God to do the same. But there's also a message here for Moses. It's not just that God's people are held in captivity. It's that his children are held in captivity. Moses can be sure that God will be an unrelenting father rescuing his children. God's devotion will outlast Pharaoh's opposition. This gives Moses one more breath of relief, one more piece of encouragement. He can rest assured that God will not back out on him. He will bring his people and those who join him home. God will not settle for less than redemption. So ever since Moses left Mount Horeb, he has experienced nothing but encouragement. But I don't think anything could have prepared him for what happened next. The scene begins in verse 24. 
We read, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Let's be honest. This scene is really hard to make sense of. Most likely, it took place at night, which is entirely appropriate because it feels like something, like watching something happen in the dark. We don't see it coming. We're not quite sure who is doing what, and it all happens so quickly. The original Hebrew doesn't shed much light on it. The commentators don't shed much light on it. Even the ancient Jewish commentators don't shed much light on it because the details just aren't there. But what we need to know is right here. We don't know much of the who or the what, but we do know the why. The reason behind these actions had to do with the role of circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of God's covenant with Israel. It was passed from Moses down from Moses from generation to generation. Failure to observe this sign was tantamount to breaking the covenant. Moses was required to have his son circumcised. If not, he was breaking his end of the covenant. So God stops him in his tracks. God's actions might seem severe, but they underline the critical importance that the covenant, that the covenant will play from this moment on. And I also just can't help to see God's mercy here. If God really wanted to put Moses to death right then, he could have instantly. But it's like God gripped him, showed him the seriousness of the situation, and then granted him the opportunity to be made right. Aren't you glad that God treats us the same way? The best thing that could happen to any one of us is to be gripped by the reality of our sin and awakened to the opportunity to be made right with God. For us in the new covenant, we are not made right by any ritual performed on the flesh, but a procedure performed on the heart when we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Like Moses, we need to realize how urgent the matter is. 2 Corinthians 6 1 through 2 says this We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For it says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. From the bottom of my heart, I pray that this opportunity would not pass by us today. I pray that there would be those who trust in Jesus Christ today. In the next scene, God continues to show Moses mercy. And I love how he orchestrated it. You see, Mount Horeb was here. And Egypt was here. And Midian was here. So after God met Moses on the burning bush, he backtracked and went the opposite direction to go to Jethro and to get his family. And then back on the way to Egypt, he stopped once again at Mount Horeb. 
And, what, and who did he find there? But Aaron, his brother. He found him in the exact spot where God had promised Moses for Aaron's help. And I wonder how it all took place. I wonder if Aaron took Moses by surprise, like a brother would do. I wonder if Moses tensed up when he noticed that someone else was there and prepared himself for battle. We don't know, but what we do know is that Aaron was there. Moses can be reassured. God is faithful to keep his promises. Moses is not going to Egypt alone. So at last they arrive in Egypt. And this is the moment that Moses had feared the most. In his interactions with God, he hadn't mentioned being afraid of Pharaoh. He mentioned how the Israelites might treat him. Would he be rejected by them like he had done before? Would they make a mockery of him and his brother? I can imagine Moses tensely looking to and fro as the crowd of the elders began to form. I can imagine the astonished look come over his face as the elders listened intently to Aaron and watched with gasps of amazement at the signs he performed. And then we reach verse 31. The word believed is emphatic in the Hebrew. The people believed. Not a single thing that Moses had feared had come to pass. Since the, Moses, since the moment Moses left the burning bush, everything had lined up perfectly. Jethro had blessed him. God had reassured him. Mercy was given to him. Aaron had joined him. And this was the culmination of it all. Verse 31 concludes, And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This scene closes with this beautiful picture of the people of Israel bowing in the sands of Egypt and worshipping God. This must have been an incredible moment For Moses and Aaron, they must have just basked in the goodness of God. The next scene opens in chapter 5, verse 1. Moses and Aaron wasted no time in heading to Pharaoh's palace. They must have been walking with a fresh confidence. Everything was falling into place. On top of that, this is where Moses grew up. This is his home turf. Navigating the palace system would be no sweat. So they came right to Pharaoh and uttered these timeless words. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. What happened next must have caught them off guard. Pharaoh sneers. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. All of a sudden, the whole momentum of the story shifts like an interception. Everything up to this point has lined up. Every play was made, and now the whole thing shifts and starts running in the opposite direction. Pharaoh defied God. It must have felt to Moses and Aaron like hitting a brick wall. They restate their request, but 
Pharaoh would hear nothing of it. Pharaoh was incensed. He doesn't just brush their request aside as insignificant. He opposes it head on as a direct threat. Pharaoh does not want his people to serve God. He wants them to serve him alone. This is personal. He kicks Moses and Aaron out with these words. Get back to your burdens. Treating them as nothing but slaves. Moses and Aaron must have walked out shaking their heads. This is not what they had planned. But Pharaoh was just getting warmed up. He must have kept thinking about it through the day. It must have kept bothering him through the day. So it says in verse 6, the same day Pharaoh called the taskmasters and foremen to himself. And then he states his new decree. Don't supply them with any straw. Make them scour for it themselves. Only don't loosen their daily requirement of bricks in the slightest. Pharaoh's plan is to make it harder on the Israelites in order to break their spirits. The Israelites' burden is already heavy. They were already crying out to the Lord in anguish. This new policy was cold and cruel. Israel would suffer dearly. Biblical archaeologist Howard Voss gives us a record of a wealthy Egyptian father describing to his son the conditions of bricklayers. The father states these words, Their kidneys suffer because they are out in the sun they, with no clothes on. Their hands are torn to ribbons by the cruel work. And they have to knead all sorts of muck. Voss adds, Certainly no one stood by to give the workers a drink every few minutes. It does not take much imagination to conclude that the severe rigor imposed on the Hebrews resulted in many of them dying of dehydration, heat stroke, and the like. They were out in the hot Egyptian sun. Temperatures often well over a hundred degrees all day long without any shade. If you've ever worked outside in the height of summer in Chicago, you might have a glimpse of how miserable this was. Pharaoh was crushing the Israelites. Things are going from bad to worse and they just keep getting worse. In verse 14, we watch as the foremen get ruthlessly beaten for not meeting the daily quota, but it was an impossible task. The foremen were Israelites too. All of Israel was suffering. It gets so bad that the foremen make a desperate appeal to Pharaoh. Notice how it says they cried to Pharaoh. They had forgotten so quickly the God who truly hears their cries. Pharaoh did not hear their cries. They returned to their source of bondage and found no relief. They found that it only made matters worse. What they found was cruelty as cold as ice. In essence, Pharaoh says, You are lazy. Go back and work. I've made up my mind. 
on their way out, the foreman took their bitterness and met Moses and Aaron right away. Things had been at least bearable before these two showed up uninvited. The word here for met and sometimes is translated attacked. And essentially that's exactly what they did to Moses and Aaron. They attacked them verbally. They called down curses on them saying, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in his hand to kill us. In other words, Pharaoh has it out for us and he is going to slay us all because of you. The whole thing could not have unraveled more quickly. The contrast between the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5 could not be more stark. At the end of chapter 4, the people are bowing down in the sands of Egypt, worshiping God. And at the end of chapter 5, Moses turns to God and says this, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter 4 was full of hope. And now Moses' hopes are dashed to the ground. This was not the plan he had in mind Moses is struggling to see God's hand in this. He's struggling to see God's purpose in this. This was not turning out as he would have hoped. Hmm. If you can relate to this in any way, if you have been touched by this struggle with letdowns, setbacks, and standstills, God's answer to Moses in chapter 6, verse 1, speaks to us as well. God says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. This answer is not a full-orbed theology on the problem of pain. But sometimes, this is exactly what we need to hear. The answer that comes to Moses is that God is doing what He promised He would do. He is faithful to deliver on His Word. Moses only had to wait. The lesson Moses had to learn is to wait on God. This lesson will serve Moses at various crucial points for the rest of his life. Moses will wait on God. When the Israelites face the Red Sea and it seems like they're at a dead end with no options, Moses will wait on God to part the sea. When Israel is starving in the middle of the desert and there is no food in sight, Moses will wait on God to provide manna. When Israel rebels against God and serves the golden calf, Moses will wait on God to have mercy on His people. 
This lesson will serve Moses for the rest of his life. And this lesson will serve you and I for the rest of our lives. We all must learn the art, the difficult art of waiting on God. So what does this look like? Waiting on God is not meant to be a pill that takes away all of our pain instantly. Like I can just say, wait on God. Oh, everything's okay now. It's not meant to take everything away instantly. It's meant to be an exercise that helps us keep facing our problems. And so it's something that we need to do daily. So two things of what it isn't and three things of what it is. Waiting on God is not waiting around for God to do something. Waiting on God is often confused with standing still and doing nothing. We associate waiting with standing in a line or waiting in a waiting room. But when we, when we look at the Exodus account, we don't see Moses sitting around waiting for God to just do something. Moses is an active part of the solution. Waiting on God means not just sitting Wondering at what point he will finally show up. Waiting on God starts with walking in obedience. Waiting on God is a refusal to not do things the world's way. To not do things our old way. To get what we need, but to walk in obedience. To take an active part. To say, God, I might not see all that's going on here, but I will wait on you because I know you will come through for me. Waiting on God is not a quick fix. It's a habit. It's something that we cultivate over time. And as we do... God will give us more and more strength to keep facing our troubles. Three things that it is. There are three basic requirements to waiting on God. Waiting on God takes time. And this is the the most difficult requirement, I'm sure, because this is the patience factor. I think of William Carey, the, the, the man that I was named after. And I think of how he led 700 people to Christ in India. And then after that sparked a missionary movement that must have, must have led in thousands of people coming to Christ. He translated the Bible in countless dialects. But you know what? He didn't see a single convert for seven years. What if he had given up at year six and a half? Waiting on God means not giving up, asking for patience. Waiting on God means remembering that line from that old chorus, I don't believe he's brought you this far to leave you. What if Moses had given up at this point? What if he had thrown in the towel? Moses, I don't believe God has brought you this far to leave you. Good news, I don't believe God has brought you this far to leave you. Number two, waiting on God takes thanksgiving. 
We, we notice this contrast between the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4, they are worshiping because times are good. Chapter 5, the people are accusing Moses and God is, or, and Moses is accusing God because times are tough. So do you see the difference? How awesome would it be if chapter 5 concluded like chapter 4? If, if at the end of all that they went through, through chapter 5, if at the end of it they knelt down in the ground and still worshipped God because of who He is. That is what waiting on God is all about. That is what He's calling us to do. The power of thanksgiving is that it takes the focus from upon ourselves and transfers it over to God. We're no longer looking at ourselves, but we're thinking of God. We we are remembering that He is faithful. We are remembering that He is good. I want to challenge you with a specific follow-up, with a specific take-home challenge. If you are in the midst of it now, if you are really struggling to wait on God now, I want to challenge you to not pray a single prayer without thanking God. And watch as it reverses your focus. I love how the book of Habakkuk ends. Habakkuk is a very difficult book where the people are struggling to wait on God, but this is how it ends. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will Rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And that is how it ends. The third and final thing that waiting on the Lord requires is waiting on the Lord takes trust. I think of my uh, my little niece and... When she was born, the doctors forgot to cut that little part that connects your tongue to the bottom of your mouth. It's called a frenulum. So for the first year of her life, she struggled and struggled and struggled to eat. And she wasn't growing because she wasn't eating. Because this little piece, this frenulum was getting in the way. Now, if it had been removed earlier in her life, it would have been much more painless. But it wasn't. So at the age of one years old, my brother had to take her into the doctor and the doctor had to snip this little part under her tongue. Can you imagine what that must have been like for her? Can you imagine how she must have felt betrayed by her father? But it was for her good. It was for her survival. It was, it was for her to be able to eat. And I wonder if we are often like my little niece. I wonder if God is holding us and he has to allow certain painful things to happen, but it's for our good. And it's in those moments that we have to trust him. He loves us. He is good. We have to trust the things that He has told us in His Word. He is always working for our good. And He dearly loves us. 
We often, when people are going through tough times, we often say, God is sovereign. And that is comforting and that is helpful. I've said it a dozen times myself, but I want to suggest today that it's incomplete. What we need to hear in the midst of our struggles is that God is sovereign and God loves you. See, Moses doesn't argue with God's sovereignty. He knows God is in control. But what he's struggling with is, does God care? So one of the most comforting things we can remember is that God is the king. He is in control. But the king is my Abba Father. The king is my Father who is good, who dearly loves me. Not only is he in control, but he loves me with a perfect love. One of my favorite lines in any hymn that often echoes in my mind comes from Christ the solid rock. It says, When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. I don't know what you might be in the midst of. I don't know what you might be facing. But I pray this day that you would rest on his unchanging grace. Rest in the goodness of the gospel that his favor for you is set on you the moment that you trust in Christ and he will be working for your good and he will be protecting you as your father. Let's pray.